0: You can now find all of C-SPAN's nonfiction-focused podcasts in one place, the C-SPAN Bookshelf feed. Follow now,
1: and you'll get all of C-SPAN's podcasts that are nonfiction book-related every week. I'm Shannon. And I'm Rachel. And as part of the podcast team here at C-SPAN, we wanted to make it easy for our nonfiction book lovers to access all of our offerings in one place.
0: Hear from authors like Kadada Williams on her book, I Saw Death Coming, Joan Biskubic and her latest, Nine Black Robes, or Neil King, who shared his walking journey from D.C. to New York City in his book,
1: American Ramble. Featured programs will include Book Notes Plus, Q&A, Afterwards, and About Books. You can follow the C-SPAN bookshelf feed wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this Juneteenth federal holiday weekend, we're re-airing a conversation we had with Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr. He was with his 14-year-old cousin Emmett Till on August 24, 1955, when they visited Bryant's Grocery in Mississippi the white store clerk, Carolyn Bryant, accused Emmett of flirting with her, breaking the racial codes of the Jim Crow South. Four days later, Parker was in the family home with Emmett Till when he was abducted by Carolyn Bryant's husband and brother-in-law, tortured and murdered. The Emmett Till case became a catalyst for the civil rights movement, and Reverend Parker has spent his lifetime seeking justice for his late cousin, recounted in his book, A Few
1: Days Full of Trouble. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Reverend Wheeler Parker Jr., your new book is A Few Days Full of Trouble, Revelations on the Journey for Justice from my cousin and best friend Emmett Till. You've got an extensive bibliography and it details that the story of your cousin Emmett Till's horrific murder in 1955 has been told many times in books, in movies, in articles, memorials. What will readers get from your new book?
2: I hope that it will clear up some things that have been said in the past. And uh, Mark Twain said an eyewitness will destroy a good story. Uh, Many stories were told before I told mine 30 years ahead of me. And when I decided to tell my story, they said that I alleged. So hopefully, hopefully uh, someone will believe my story and take from it.
0: Setting the record straight after all this time.
2: There you go. You got the right words.
0: What What prompted you, though, now, 67 years later, to write?
2: I have a cousin. I was not interested in writing at all. And she just would not uh, stop Dr. Sheila Cham- uh, Chamberlain. And she just insisted that I write. And I said, OK, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And every time I see her, she asks me. She just was worse than me. And so that's really what caused me to write it.
0: Chris Benson is listed as your co-author, but he is also a major participant in your story. Who is Chris Benson, and what role did he play?
2: Chris Benson, uh, I met him through Emmett mother, Miami. He was helping her to write her book, and she sent him to us to get the uh, Argo story. That's where I live, and that's how I met him.
0: But he's more than just a co-author. He's a participant. Oh,
2: he, yes, he's, he's, uh, he, he's a God sent. He's, a, he's an attorney. He's a professor. He's a journalist. And anything you name, I guess, uh, he's that. And he has been very helpful. And he is a participant. And, and like I said, he's just a God sent for me.
0: So uh, as a reader of your book, I found three strong narratives throughout it. The events as you witnessed them back in August of '55, your long quest and your family's quest for justice, and your own personal journey, which has been also a long and and uh, an evolving one. So let's start out with the the facts as you witnessed them. You and Emmett Till were both raised in Chicago, and you were making a family trip a trip to visit. Uh, the Mississippi Delta at the end of August. In the book, for context, you explain that racial tensions were especially high in the segregated South and in the Delta region particularly, because of the 1954 Brown v. Board decision. What was daily life like for your family who lived there then?
2: Uh, in, in the South? Yes. Well, we there were cer- certain laws and mores in place and uh, they were very much entrenched and We abide by those, and there was no problem as long as you stayed in line and uh, conduct yourself accordingly. So, we we knew what the rules were and are very stringent. And we knew that if you got in trouble with anyone, you could get no help from no one.
0: Did you and Emmett Till, your cousin, discuss that on your trip south?
2: We did not discuss that. That would not be something a 16 and a 14 year old would discuss we had more important things to talk about.
0: what were your your plans when you made the trip south? Why did you make it?
2: Uh, to there was a tradition and the prior of pretty much is that the great migration brought five million blacks to the north. tradition each year was to send the children back to be with their grandparents and uh, with their relatives in the south and that there was a tradition and it's, its it went on and it was a viable. Uh, You met other family members come from different parts of the north and sometimes from California. So it was a great, exciting time, fun, fun time. And we got together and had a great time.
0: You uh, say in the subtitle that Emmett Till was your best friend and you actually have a nickname for him that you use throughout the book. Would you share it with our viewers? Uh,
2: His nickname was Bobo and it's still kind of hard for me to say Emmett Till. It just doesn't sound right.
0: (laughs) Well, that's why I wanted to get it on the record. So feel free to use Bobo now that people know who you're referring to.
2: Yeah, Bobo. His name was Bobo. and, And I moved next door to him. We did not live in Chicago proper. We lived in a little town called Summit, Argo, Illinois. And of course, he moved his last two or three years of his life was spent in Chicago proper, but we lived out in the suburb what they call the country of Chicago.
0: So will you walk me through those few days full of trouble began on August 24th, 1955 at the Bryant grocery store. Would you walk me through what you saw that day?
2: It was a day we had, uh, it, it remembers cotton picking time, it's farming, harvesting time. So uh, when you go south during that time, you go, you get right to the cotton fields. So we had been in the cotton field that day picking and, uh, we left just before sundown. Normally, you work from sun to sun, when the sun come up until it go all the way down. So we uh, decided we go up to the little store, which is about three miles away, up to gravel road there to the blacktop. And we arrived there and and people had gathered from different little uh, areas, little hamlets. And there were only like, I think, 350 people in money itself. So they came from different little areas to this little country store. And we gathered outside there. Some were playing checkers and uh, jaw jerking and joshing each other and having a great time. And uh, while we were there, um, I decided to go in and purchase some things from, in the store. It's a typical country store where, when you went into the store, you you went up to the counter. Everything that you wanted was behind the counter, and you pointed it out and you told the, the storekeeper what you wanted, and they would bring it to you and You didn't shop and bring yourself to the counter, but they would take it off the wall, off the shelf, and bring it to you. That's how you purchase your things, and I purchased my things there.
0: So then, what happened with your cousin Emmett?
2: Uh, Emmett came in before I left. Out by the time I'm, I'm winding up or paying for my things, he came in, and I remember thinking, uh, very vividly, I said, "I hope he got his act together today. I hope he." know know the rules of the South and because you're always conscientious of where you are. At least I was out. My formative years of spending the South and I was very much, very well entrenched in the mores and the laws of the South. I knew the do's and the don'ts. And and most of your time spent in the South was not in that environment. But when you went into that environment, you had to be very careful because some people had been killed for reckless eyeball. They, They protected a Southern way of life, a system that was in place so I saw him and I said, man, I hope he got it together, you know. Uh, I, I knew because I had been, uh, we about seven, eight years with the training very much. I mean, I heard all the stories all the time about the South. We call it going behind the Iron Curtain. So I left him in the store. Nothing happened while I was in there. And shortly after my uncle, Simeon, who's 12 years old, he was 14 and I was uh, 16, came in with him. And uh nothing happened while they were in the store. Uh they came out of the store and and uh once they were out of the store a short time later, I don't know how long Miss Bryant comes out of the store. And Emmett is a prankster, he loves to make people laugh. He never had a dull day in his life. He's a jokester. So he whistles to make us laugh and give give her the wolf whistle. And when he did that we could have died. I mean, you had to have understood. The atmosphere in 1955 in Mississippi, a black man whispering at a white woman. I mean, that was death itself, and uh, and we just we just couldn't believe it. No one said let's go. My uncle, who was 16, he had used to a car, and we just made a beeline for the car. I got into the car, and uh, Emmett. He now he's afraid. He's anxious because we are. Uh, we know what he has done. He had no idea. He, had, he just didn't have no idea. He couldn't comprehend the atmosphere in the South, where it was like, and now he's afraid. So he want my uncle Maurice to take off in a car, but someone had dropped a cigarette and my uncle Maurice would not move until he found us, until we found that cigarette. Got the cigarette together and there's was a car full of us, maybe seven, eight. And we're going down this gravel road, it's dust dark now. And all of a sudden there's a car behind us. We left the black park, we're on the gravel and dust is flying everywhere. They said, someone said, they're after us, they're after us, they're after us. And my uncle sped up and we jumped out of the car and ran through a cotton field. And of course, the people went right on by and we regrouped at the edge of the road and Emmett begged us not to tell my grandfather. But there was a girl there named Ruth Crawford. She said, look, this is not over. I know those people. They've done things to people before. You guys are going to hear from this. And we didn't pay much attention, you know. Nothing happened then. Uh, the car kept going, and no one said, and else said anything. So that was Wednesday, of course, and uh, uh, there was that was the end of that night, right there.
0: So uh, one thing to establish: the person working in the store it was the Bryant family store, and mm-hmm. Carolyn Bryant, who is a key player in the story that you tell was alone in the store is that correct working behind the counter yes yeah,
2: she she was alone in the store right
0: and and w- when uh, your cousin whistled at her what was her reaction
2: i i couldn't tell you what a facial reaction was but we knew that she i don't know if she's coming out to go to her car but she went to her left and to our right and someone said she's going to get a gun. Uh, they probably said because they knew that Emmett had violated one of the greatest uh, uh mores of the South. You I mean, people killed for reckless eyeballs, and they, that was one thing they did. They protected that woman in the South. And even now, we can't understand to what degree black people were not interested in white women like that. And uh we just couldn't understand it. But it was a fear in the South of the losing. I don't know what it was, but anyway... We uh, she didn't make any uh, overt uh, move or gesture as far as I'm concerned, and when they said she's going to get a gun, well we, we were already in the process of leaving.
0: The, several days went by before the next and uh, terrible events happened. What were those couple of days like? Did you you and your family continue to live in concern or fear over what had happened at the store? Or did you feel like maybe it's going to be okay? We haven't heard from them.
2: Uh, being youngsters, 12, 14, and 16, I think we thought everything was okay. No, knowing where we were and what could happen if we hadn't felt comfortable, we'd have probably tried to get out of there told my grandfather. So we, we we went on with life as usual, you know. Going And life as usual, going to the cotton field from sun up to sun down and back to the house. And that's what we did. And, uh, going to the watermelon fields, taking watermelons and eating that. But our life continued like that until Saturday, of course. In the South, on a Saturday, most people We'll go to the local or the larger uh, store to do shopping, the monthly or weekly shopping, whatever whatever have you. And we went to Greenwood. Of course, we spent the the evening up there until about midnight.
0: Yeah. And your family was enjoying uh, time together, maybe a few libations and everything on, on that particular night, August 28th, correct? Sure. Yeah. So then August 28th is the, uh, the next stage in this terrible story. We have a clip of your grandfather, uh, Moses Wright, who you call Papa, as whose house you were all staying in, uh, describing that night to 60 Minutes back in 2004, to Ed Bradley of 60 Minutes. Let's watch.
3: Carolyn Bryant's husband, Roy, and his half-brother, J.W. Milam, went looking for him at Till in the middle of the night and found him and his cousins at
2: the home of Reverend Mose Wright, Emmett's late great-uncle, who recounted what happened next.
3: Sunday morning, about 2.30, I heard a voice at the door. And I asked, who was it? And it said, this is Mr. Bright. I want to talk with you and the boy. And when I opened the door, there was a man standing with a pistol in one hand and flashlight in the other. Emmett Till and Simeon Wright, Mose Wright's son, were asleep together in one
2: room and Wheeler Parker was in another room, awakened by the sounds of angry voices.
0: So what happened next, Reverend Parker?
2: I remember hearing them outside talking to my I woke up early and during the incident and said, you got two boys here from Chicago and we want to talk to the one that did the talk at the store. They never said anything about a whistle. And right away, my knowledge, I'm 16, and the stories that I've heard, having heard about people being hung down the street from my uncle's house, and my dad had to sleep with his gun overnight because of possible altercation, I said, we're getting ready to die. And we were very, very religious and we were taught to believe in God, and, and first thing pops in my mind, not only am I getting ready to die, but my relationship with God is not right. So when death is imminent, your mind goes to every bad thing, whatever it is you've ever done, and you're trying to make amends with God. So I started praying, and I'm shaking like a leaf on a tree, and And I'm asking God, I said, Lord, if you just let me live, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to straighten things up if you just let me live. And and, uh, and pretty soon, I hear them coming. Uh, The house was sometimes styled as a shack, but it was a former landowner's home. A big screened-in porch all the way across. And off of each corner, there's a room. You can go up to a room. Four-bedroom house, rooms back-to-back, back, no hallway. So my grandfather had no idea where Emmett was. The first room to the right, off the front of the screening board, it was his room. The other side, I was in that room with my Uncle Maurice, who never woke up. So they started in my room, in as dark as a thousand midnight. You could not see your hand before your face. In they walk, no lights on in the house, in they walk with a pistol in one hand and a flashlight in the other. I am shaking, praying, and and as they came toward me, I closed my eyes to get ready to die the best way I could, and I'd be shot. They didn't open my eyes again, and they're passing by me. And they went on to the third, second room. I, it was not in that room. My cousin Curtis is there. Uh, he didn't wake up either. Went to the third room and they found Emmett uh, in the bed with my Uncle Simeon, who was 12. And my Uncle Robert was in that room also in another bed. And he never woke up. And of course, they aroused Emmett. And and I guess he wanted to put his socks on. And it was pure hell over there. It, it was uh, chaos. It was, couldn't tell exactly what was being said, but it was just my grandmother tried to. Over the money and she tried to run next door there's a white man living next door to get him to help but it was just pure chaos and they came to get Emmett and they left with him said they'd bring him back if he was not the one
0: so they, they marched Emmett out the door to their waiting vehicle there's a yes. critical moment that uh, plays out throughout the rest of your investigation uh, when, you, when a voice was heard would you tell me about that?
2: I didn't hear the voice. My grandfather uh, said they he heard a light voice, the niche of a woman, and they asked, "Was he the one?" And, and she said, "Yes." So you, you're, said
0: yes. he was pretty sure it was a she
2: that said yes. Yes, yes he was. Yes, yes. Yeah. So. And that, that's been the question. For six or seven years. That's
0: right, and so much of the investigation that you talk about later on. So you, Emmett has been marched away in front of your family. What? Mm-hmm. How could you respond? How, how did you respond as a family?
2: We were. We knew where we were. We knew the South. We knew the Maoris. We knew the people, and we, we, we knew it, didn't, it. It wasn't good. It was not good at all. Yet have lived under those conditions to really understand now what I'm talking about. So we just, you felt helpless. I mean, you were helpless. Uh, only somebody you could call on was God. I didn't call on my grandfather when they came. I knew my grandfather could not help me. Uh, it was a case where when they decided to do something to you like that, and it happened on a, uh, uh, I'm going say a regular basis, but it did happen because it was the thing that was used to keep black people in line, and it worked very well. Uh, because they, were, they didn't talk about doing something to you or killing you they did it and no they didn't have to worry about it. no one saying anything to them and you had no protection no one was going to bother them about doing something to a black people. did person. you
0: did you go to the authorities did your family try to get help from the authorities
2: they did i did not uh they they went and they looked um uh, by the rivers where normally people are thrown uh, to uh, hide the evidence, uh, because they don't want bodies laying all over the place. Well, sometimes they would leave people laying so that the people will see it and take note and be afraid. Uh, but uh, sometimes they look by the rivers to uh, find and discover the bodies of people who have been thrown in the river. So yes, they did go to the authorities and uh, and, and and they went into action. The authorities went into action, which was very unusual.
0: How long did it take for Emmett Till's body to be discovered?
2: That was Sunday morning. I really found his body on Wednesday. By that time, I was back in Chicago.
0: Why did you go back to Chicago?
2: Hey, I, I, I would have left Chicago that moment if I could, because I felt I felt uh, fearful. I was fearful for my life, and I felt, uh, by being in Chicago, I felt that I would be safe.
0: Did your family think the worst of what had happened, even though there hadn't been a body found?
2: I'm, I'm sure as a whole, yes. I got back and there was a vigil. And they started the moment right away. They started looking for him in the river. So they, they felt the worst. Yes, because they know they know the deal. You, I mean, you don't whistle at a white woman in Mississippi, you know, you just don't do it. You don't even look at them, you know. So, the, so this, the they t- knew right away it could have been a death. You know.
0: Uh, sorry for interrupting you. The the two perpetrators, uh, Mr. Bryant, who is the the owner of the store, and uh, J. W. Milam, were arrested fairly soon uh, with this on charges of abduction. Uh, uh, did they admit to having abducted your cousin?
2: They did. They and they were very they were highly insulted that they had been arrested for protecting a southern way of life. Matter of fact, I understand that when the first sheriff went there, they would not even go with him. I understand they told him, that's BS. You know, I'm trying to protect the southern way of life, and you guys going to arrest me? So then I understand that the high sheriff, the next level, went and, and I told him, we're coming out there, we're taking you dead alive, let's go. And that was... Uh, there was history being made to, a, to arrest someone, to charge someone, to do something to a black man. It may, ha- may not have been the first time, but you can rest assured, very unusual in something that was not gonna happen too often because they, they could get away with anything. But there, there has always been someone that had the fire in their belly to stand up and the courage to do what's right.
0: So the uh, charges were changed to murder after Emmett Till's body was discovered. Um, this is the terrible question to ask you, but when when his body was recovered, what did the extent of the injuries that your family saw tell the story of what had happened to him?
2: It, it was beyond imagination. You wonder, if he just turned 14, how can, we heard Willie Reed's report, how that, uh, he heard the screaming and the beating. And you wonder how can a human being do that to another human being? You try to make sense of it, but when you get through, it does not make sense. He was so badly bruised and battered that you couldn't tell who he was. As a matter of fact, the system, uh, the court system or the powers of be said, You all have dug an old white man up out of the grave, and you're doing this. So Emmett Till is in Detroit with his uh, grandfather, and you all are doing this trying to embarrass Mississippi. So for them to say that we dug an old white man up, and Emmett is 14, he had hazel eyes and you're fair-skinned. So uh, it tells you how badly his body was uh, damaged.
0: He had also been shot?
2: Yes. Uh yes, shot in the head. Someone said he was drilled in the head, but we believe that it was shot. He had, had been shot. There was a hole above his right above his right ear, I believe.
0: And the last part of this, because it's actually important to the story, how did they ensure that his body would sink?
2: They had tied um the 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 weight dimensions changed but they had tied a cotton gin fan around his neck and weighted him down don't know i don't know if it weighed 75 pounds or what he should have never been found he should have never been seen but as his body floated down the river it snagged and this little white boy that was fishing saw a foot bobbing up and down in the water and he reported it in the uh pull him it out from there
0: but for that, the story would have never been told.
2: We never found it. I mean, we just always been a mystery like it was with other people. And it just disappeared.
0: So uh, this is really one of the critical junctions. Uh, Emmett's mother, Mamie, back in Chicago, made what seems like a, a, the most important decision that she wanted her son's body, body brought back to Chicago. And she insisted on having an open casket. One hundred thousand people came to witness Emmett Till's body in that casket. Where did she get the courage to make that decision? Do you think, as a mother?
2: I think yeah, I think that she was so outdone and, and so unbelievable that she just let, she's willing to bear it all. They all hang out, and uh, she she was very hurt and rightfully so. I think she's just willing to bear it all. You know, I felt like she felt that the least she could do is let the world see what I see. She was so tore up and so uh, so uh, uh, upset about what had happened to her son.
3: What
0: was the, uh, the legacy, the impact, the fallout from that significant decision to have it be an open funeral and, op- and invite the public to come witness?
2: Yeah, a picture's worth a thousand words. That picture spoke volumes. Uh, I talked to a friend of mine, uh, he's a white journalist in the South, and he said, I thought we were farther ahead than, uh, what are you talking about now? I thought we were farther ahead than we are. And uh, it it spoke, it made a statement that nothing else could say. It said something that nothing else could say, right? showing that body. And uh, you couldn't justify it and uh, they tried to justify it, but you just it spoke volumes and it spoke more than the words that people were trying to say.
0: So let's move on to part two of your narrative which was the the long quest for justice for Emmett Till's murder. Uh, There were three significant stages as you describe them in the judicial process. First was the Mississippi trial of Bryant and Milam on murder charges. Uh, So we're going to start there. They went to trial pretty quickly, September of 1955. But you say that the jury returned a not guilty verdict in just 67 minutes of deliberation. What happened at that trial?
2: First thing, I I want to say that it was a miracle and showed a little progress. They are having a trial. Unbelievable. Unbelievable they having a trial for two guys who accused of killing a black man. Going in and out of the courtroom every day, Emmy's mother was afraid that she could be killed in the courtroom. I'm trying to paint the picture so you can see what the atmosphere was like in Mississippi, even in the courtroom. She was not comfortable going in and out of the courtroom every day. My grandfather went home from trial one evening and that night he could not sleep. So he got up and he went down to the cemetery and he slept in the cemetery all night. And when he came back the next day, they told him that white man was around your house all night last night. He could have been killed, absolutely nothing done about. That's the way the South was at that time. We've made progress. We've come a long way. We got a lot of work to do. So the trial was like that, and and uh, of course, her and Willie Reed, Willie Reed pointed the the uh, kidnappers out, and my grandfather did also. So Mamie Till and Willie Reed both got back to Chicago the same day, and both of them had nervous breakdowns and had to be hospitalized.
0: Reverend Parker, so Carolyn Bryant's testimony in that trial was pivotal.
2: Why? Uh, I don't know if it was pivotal or not. It didn't matter. (laughs) Because she did not testify before the jury. So it had no bearing on the jury. Uh, But she said, "I I became only privy to it 50 years later. What did she say? She said that he touched her. And uh, she doesn't, she said she don't know We The kid stuttered all the time, not sometimes. That's the way of life. He had had polio. Uh, I got the clipping. I was reading it last night, 1947, and he became a stutterer. She can't remember that. She said that he told her, what's the matter, baby? Don't be afraid of me. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I've been with white women before. And, but you had to do something to kind of justify what they did to him. It's kind of like Hitler did to Jews, you know, you got to demonize them. So they tried to demonize it. And we, I never knew about she said all that until they found the transcript and some kids from West Virginia came. Oh, I went there to hear them do it. I said, whoa, I never heard this before. So, uh, and when they came to get him, they never said anything about, uh, him touching her or even whistling just to the talk. But by now, you got to try to protect your husband, you got to try to protect, because who, no one ever expect that they're gonna be arrested or accosted for doing something to a black man. They had, there was not in their the wildest imagination that they would have to defend themselves like they had to. And they were safe. They were safe, as the, as the lawyer said, the, a uh, defense attorney said, every anglo Saxon, one of y'all have the courage to turn these men loose. And that's just what they did.
0: The next significant event, January 24th, 1956, the two of them spoke to a writer for Look Magazine named William, William Huey. Um, and they were at this point protected by Double Jeopardy because they had been acquitted. What, what did that article say?
2: That article has stayed with me from the time, age 66 to now. It was such a damaging article for me, the way they portrayed him. And and I felt so helpless then and feel a little better now that I'm able to tell my story to you. Maybe somebody I didn't believe me. What they said was ludicrous, that he stood up against them, facing death, tell him I'm not afraid of y'all and all of, all of the things we read the article. Uh, and it was not him at all. We, I know Emmett, I know well, well, we, we, you know We live next door to each other. And we went places did things together. But that article and that mainline news uh, uh, periodical carried the story. And for 30 years, it was like Emmett got what he deserved. That's what I lived with from 1955 to 1985 when things started to change a little bit. The atmosphere, the attitude was all together. He got what he deserved. Matter of fact, I was speaking at a a school, and they said, why are we here? They misbehaved. Oh, he got what he deserved. That's painful. And when I told my story 30 years later, they said, I alleged yeah, so we we got a lot of work to do. We come a long ways, and when I see things happen to some other people recently, I, I that spirit is still alive. But we've come a long ways.
0: Two federal cases. The first one in, in two thousand four. Uh, on what grounds did the feds agree to to have an investigation into his murder?
2: Uh, someone had wrote some uh, wrote a book or did some talk about he had information about people who were still alive was intricately involved. So they decided they would investigate. And of course, they investigated and gave it to a grand jury. And they couldn't find anything worthy of arresting anyone.
0: So they empowered a grand jury, and no charges were filed. Yeah. You report in the book that it produced eight thousand pages of documents and and no no indictments. But two people come into your story at this point who are really important: an FBI special agent by the name of Henry, and also a man named Alan Sykes. Let's talk about Alan Alvin Sykes. Uh, what? Uh, how did he come on the scene with you? And what what important role did he play in uh, Emmett Till's pursuit for justice? Yeah.
2: Aaron Seitz is a very unique character, unusual, out of Kansas City. This man didn't uh, finish high school. I don't know if he f- finished grade school good, but he was so entrenched in the law that lawyers thought that he was a lawyer. And he had helped solve a case out in Kansas, and he got the fire in his belly about Emmett Till. So he came here and I uh, started the justice campaign. I'm not sure about the correct name. And he wanted to uh, pursue it with Maine because she died shortly afterwards. And, uh, we got, he, he had me to go to the justice department. Uh, he was able to get the powers to be senators and, uh, and the uh, Congress to pass a law. I don't know the proper name, but we call it the Emmett Hill Bill, which allowed a million dollars a year for 10 years to pursue cases. And I believe I could be wrong from 1977 back, Alvin was able to get that done in a Republican setting. He he was not a Democrat or Republican, but he was a man that wanted to see justice done.
0: uh, C-SPAN readers who follow the Congress will appreciate this story of Alvin Sykes in your book because he went at it in a bipartisan way from the get-go, worked both sides and both houses of Congress in his Mm -hmm. pursuit for the legislation, which was ultimately signed into law by George W. Bush in 2008. Um, Mm Law is now permanent. President Obama signed it into place in 2016. So what does it do?
2: it allows, and remember they had to go back, it ex, it expired, so uh, President Obama, they went back and had to pass it again, which is still for another 10 years. I think it's indefinite now, and it allows uh, the powers to be to pursue cases like Emmett Till's cold cases uh, of people who were suffered atrocities from 1976 backwards, and uh, it's there, and uh we called it the tail, I call it the tail bill. So Alvin was very instrumental, and he was one of the poorest guys you even want to see, but he was so knowledgeable. A guy put the fire in his belly to go into the library, and that's where he spent his time in the library, learning law. He was so articulate, and he's just unbelievable. And Then he died, I just wish he had, wish he was still here to uh, to carry on, and I think they're trying to write his memoirs or his books now out uh, of Kansas City, Kansas.
0: FBI Special Agent Henry was really important to your your pursuit for justice. What What do you have to say about his role in this?
2: He came on during the time Tyson came and said, Ms. Bryant says she lied on Emmett Hill. The case had never been closed. So that brought on new interests in FBI uh, Walter Henry was assigned to it out of the Northern Mississippi District in Oxford, I believe, and uh, he pursued it to, again, to try to find evidence if there were anyone left that they were going to, you know, do what they needed to do to bring them to, to get some justice. And that's the role he played. He, he made us very comfortable and. Uh, he brought us to the FBI headquarters and we dialogued with them and they, they were very instrumental in trying to um, get to the end of it or to find justice.
0: I understand from reading your book that one of the aspects of the law is that the uh, federal government is required to keep the family informed as cases progressed. And, and they did that along the way with you and even discussed strategy for going forward. Is that correct?
2: They, they, they kept us very much aware of what they were doing and what was going on all the time.
0: The 2017 book by Duke University historian Timothy Tyson was the next big accelerant in this whole process of seeking justice. What was the big news in Timothy Tyson's book?
2: Timothy Tyson wrote the book and it, it just, his book gave me a lot of hope and it brought a lot of satisfaction and a lot of closure to me when he was saying that she, because I, my, all my life, I did not like the way that they were portrayed in it. And he admitted, uh, said that she said she lied. So that gave me uh, some sense of closure because I wanted his name the way he portrayed it. I wanted that clear, I couldn't, you can't bring him back, but I didn't like the way he was looked at. I liked the way he was viewed in history. So I got very excited about his book, very excited. So the FBI, they, they went into that, and well, you, you read it, you know the story there.
0: But to give our, our listeners a sense of what's important about it, the central claim, the part that was the big news in the book, was that Tyson said that Carolyn Bryant-Donham had recanted on her story. Yes. So what did that piece of information give you, your family, and the FBI uh, license to do?
2: It gave me, um, we were kind of at, 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 not at odds with each other. That's what I wanted. That's the main thing I wanted to clear his name up, clear the way people look at him. That's all I wanted in life. And uh, I wasn't so much, and and if there's some justice by her going to jail, fine, but my, I, had, I had what I wanted when I heard that she had admitted that she lied. But other family members, they wanted much more than that, and I was not against that, uh, but I, I, I felt so good to think, uh, here that she had said she uh, lied on Emmett.
0: The the, uh, idea would be that from your other family members that if they could prove that, they might have her tried at this point?
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, so you had a multi-year search with the FBI involved about authenticating that claim that she had recanted. What
2: happened? They pursued it and they unturned every stone with the DOG, Department of Justice, the FBI, the uh, district attorney in Mississippi, uh, and they could find nothing where they could bring someone to justice. Matter of fact, they even had another grand jury to get involved. And some of the laws that they were trying to address in uh, applying to her case had expired, and the only way they could have done anything is she had admitted that she was there at the kidnapping. And uh, that didn't happen, and I don't think she's going to do that. But it's still open. If you can come up with anything, they're willing to hear it and take action on it. It is now, for the first time in the 67 years, closed.
0: So she cannot be prosecuted any further? Is that what you're saying?
2: She can if they can find evidence.
0: how how mm-hmm. How old is she now
2: uh she's eighty eight
0: We also learned that in the process of uh your investigation that she had written a book herself
2: yes she she has uh, written i don't know some book or memoirs or whatever but she has done some uh, writing herself
0: mm-hmm. You were able to read her manuscript and you were also able to listen to some audio tapes of her Giving an interview to Timothy Tyson, what was that experience like for you?
2: Wow, I I can't find words to to say because uh, I didn't get out of it what I wanted to get out of it, and that was a confession. So I still have hope that one day uh, we will hear that from her, and that that, that will help make my day. Uh, to hear some of the things or to read some of it, it was, oh boy, I, I don't know what word to use, but to, uh, I'm trying to find the right words to say. It's like she became superhuman or she was really uh, trying to save him or her husband tried to save him. It, it's, uh, you have to read it, but it just, it's kind of a mind-boggling, some of the things that uh, uh, she was saying about the situation. And I think she even said that he didn't deserve to die like he did. But her husband was involved, and I think at that, at this point, she's trying to protect him uh, and seem like she's throwing her husband brother under the bus, you know. But uh, you, you have to read it. It's... it's uh, it's something to put it that way.
0: You reported that the title of her book is I Am Not a Wolf Whistle.
2: Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: So the uh, the second FBI investigation closed in 2021. Again, no one was, was further charged in uh, Emmett Till's murder. So what did that provide you with any closure, any desire to move on? Uh, what did that 2021 finality mean to you?
2: Well, we had some family members in and, and, uh, the case that kind of put us at odds with one another traveling different uh, down different avenues about his death and so on. So it kind of brought a closure to that. And uh I, I'm a person of faith, and we are people of faith. And Emmett mother said, it was in 2003, she says, like, they don't exist in my life, and I follow the same path. We believe, as she said, and they said at his funeral, God said, vengeance is man. No one gets by. Everybody has to pay, and we're very acutely aware of that. And we have a life. So when you have a life, you have to get back to uh, the business at hand and uh, so I, I did not let that destroy me because we're here to serve humanity and that's what I do. I spend my life serving humanity and that that's a cure-all.
0: That's a nice segue into the last part I wanted to talk to you about and that's your own personal journey. You were a victim of this terrible crime. You thought you were going to die that night and you had to live with the survivor's guilt all of these years. Uh, you had some rough years afterwards. How did you turn your life around?
2: I I, I was, um, go back and always go back to the night that they came, realizing that my relationship with God was not right. And I promised God if he let me live, I was gonna get it right and in essence, fulfill my purpose. Everybody here on earth has a purpose, a calling in life. And uh, every now and then I I would be, uh, not a victim, but I'd hear that call and hear that voice in my head. You didn't have to make God that promise. What about that promise you made? I could be in the midst of a gay activity, and that would come to me. And uh, so at age 22, I felt like I had to make a change or that it was not gonna be good. So a I, I voice came to me and said, "Ask God to give you a man to do what's right. Whenever you got a man to do something, it's easy to do. So ask God to give me a man to uh, say yes to Him and fulfill that purpose for which I'm put on earth for." And I had a radical change at age 22, and I and I've been the happiest man in the world ever since.
0: Went into the ministry at that point.
2: Uh well, not actively, but it wasn't It was wasn't long afterwards, so I went to the ministry. I went into the church. I, I went to the church, and one Friday I remember walking off the street and said, this is it. I'm through with the world. Goodbye world. I'm going. And, and in the, any denomination, in the 20s, you find no young people holler in the church, but I was okay with it. I was content. I was satisfied. And I never looked back. Never looked back.
0: I want to uh, talk about a little bit more about Mamie Till Mobley. We have a video of her from 2002 uh, mm-hmm. talking about how she has come to peace with the death of her son. Let's listen. In
3: 1955, when my only child was killed, it seemed that there was nothing for me to live for. I wanted to die. But in the midst of that planning The Lord spoke to me, and he told me not to spend my time hating the perpetrators of the crime because they would not even know that I was hating them. And the things that would be released into my body would eventually destroy me. I can truthfully say that for 47 years, I have not wasted any time hating Milo and Bryant. They became inconsequential so far as I was concerned. It was as if they didn't even exist.
0: Reverend Parker, you say that on the 30th anniversary of Emmett Till's murder, Mamie Till Mobley asked you to get into the battle. How did you respond?
2: I'm listening to her because we had... um, we have a, a center out here. And I took her by and showed her what we were doing. And she wanted me to carry it on. And uh, right away, I said, yes. At the same time, I said, how can I do it? What What is it that I can do? I, I felt very helpless, but I I couldn't say no. Uh, I was doing things, but I didn't think of it as being uh, because of him, per se. But I knew I had a calling, a purpose in life. and. And I was working in the community work with scouts, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, and all of those things that uh, and parenting classes and stuff of that nature. That's what we were doing. Um so um, what happened is that my wife got involved and and then it became interest, more interest in the Till story. So we named center after Emmett And then till Memorial Center and we now have programs, uh Got the street named after him. We got a, some work done where he used to live. A plaque on that lot. So those are the kind of things that we're doing. Uh, he still speaks from the grave. I mean, uh, been gone a long time, but he still speaks from the grave.
0: You write that one of the uh, questions for yourself all along was what would justice look like, and that as in the last few years. You you reached a a, a a real view that had evolved for yourself on what that might look like, uh, and, and much of it around young people. Can you talk about that?
2: What would justice look like? I, I, well, I resolved and accepted the fact that everybody reap what they sow, and we have a purpose in life, and we're here to serve humanity. So i spent my time uh, trying to fulfill that purpose and the calling that's in my life, working with young people and. Many times, I think, uh, if Teal was there, he would be a natural-born leader. And uh, I, I want to think that he would be doing just what I'm doing.
0: So when you reflect back on the legacy of this uh, this, m- this murder, there was the Emmett Till bill, as you call it, the hate crimes legislation. Um, in mm-hmm. 2020, the Congress passed and the President signed the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act. So two major pieces of legislation. There are now cold case investigators working on civil rights cases at at important law schools around the country. As you said, there's an education center and the National Park Service is working with you to establish sites that would mark uh, important uh, points on Emmett Till's life story. I'm wondering what you think about all of this, how you process all of the things that came out of such a terrible event.
2: And I do think about it it's a good question. When I get through thinking about all that has been accomplished because of the image, we're getting ready to, in my high school, which is next door to me, we're getting ready to put a Mamie Tell a statue of Mamie with a picture of her son in front of the high school. One of the many things, but my man always go back. To the night of his death, the beating and the screaming and how he suffered. Appreciate all the things that were done, but I always go back to that. Uh, it doesn't, uh, um, it doesn't depress me, and I appreciate what was done. But I, I, you know, his mother said, "I hope you didn't die in vain." He didn't die in vain, and, and I think about him uh, having experience on the back of a CTA bus that summer before we went, a uh, good friend of ours. They came from Moody Bible Institute, and they led him to Christ on the back of that book. So I have those thoughts that I don't talk about much, but uh, so th- those, those are my mixed emotions that I have.
0: So in our last couple of minutes here, um, what do you think the story of Emmett Till represents about America? Wow.
2: It tells, and I tell people for my talks, I say, I always have to start off when I hear a stir of animosity, ill will, or hate, but I want to talk about history. Emmett Till's story marks a period in our history of where we were and where we are now. It shows how far we've come, how we got here, and how much work we still have to do. I
0: want to thank you for spending this time with us, Reverend Wheeler Parker, Jr., Emmett Till's cousin, Who uh, life was changed along with Emmett Till's loss of life back in August of 1955. His new book is A A Few Days Full of Trouble Revelations on the Journey for Justice from my cousin and best friend, Emmett Till. Reverend Parker, thank you so much for the conversation.
2: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: A final note. 88-year-old Carolyn Bryant Donham, Emmett Till's accuser, died in April of this year, taking the facts of what happened long ago in the family grocery store with her to her grave. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Remember, if you subscribe to this podcast, you'll never miss an episode. And I'd really like to hear from you about our interviews. You can email me at podcasts that's podcast with an S, at c-span.org. Your feedback is welcome.